0: Head to my website SimonMundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds
0: that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons podcast with me, Simon Mundy. Each week I speak to renowned thinkers, philosophers, psychologists, scientists, sports people and the like to explore something important about life and how best to live it. And together we do try and answer some of life's bigger questions. And I'm delighted that my debut book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself is available for pre-order currently and will be on general release from January the 18th, 2024. It's published by Bloomsbury. Our will in the show notes, and you can head to simonmundy.com to find out more. In this week's conversation, I'm speaking to a woman recognized as one of the world's most transformative thinkers. Now, we've all heard about psychological safety in recent years and why it is so important for organizations to embrace it if they want to thrive. Well, Amy Edmondson is the woman who not only coined the phrase psychological safety. She also provided all the groundbreaking research to show why it is so important. Now, in this episode, we talk about the importance of embracing failure, not any kind of failure, but what she calls intelligent failures. She explains what intelligent failures are, what's stopping us from embracing them, how psychological safety really fits in and the kinds of failures that we definitely want to avoid. Amy, how lovely to see you. How are you?
1: I'm well, thank you.
0: It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've had many of the world's elite thinkers, I would say, on. I've been very fortunate in that regard. But I'd put you in the very top bracket. How does it feel to have compliments chucked at you like that, just out of interest?
1: It feels quite awkward, to be honest. What you just said cannot be true. my, My younger son, who was about 21 at the time when I was identified by the Thinker's 50 as number one management thinker, I said, gosh, it must have been a tough year for thinking. <laughs> I, I have to say I feel similarly. It's hard to
0: take compliments in that way, I think. I think, for a lot of people. And so these kind of awards, and you've got lots of them, I suppose <laughs> are sort of have two different kinds of reaction. It must be quite gratifying, but at the same time, yes. quite awkward as well. Now, I'm just going to quickly flash your book, Right <laughs> Kind of Wrong. I just want to say congratulations on it, really. It, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, it was very deep, very profound, gave me a lot to think about. How happy are you with it?
1: I'm so happy to hear you say that, you know, and it, it's. Um, I worked very hard on this book and I really did pull together thoughts, frameworks, ideas, stories from many, many years of pondering these issues. So I'm glad it came together.
0: And if I was to sum it up, I would say, Not all failures are equal. It's about making more of the good ones and fewer of the bad ones.
1: Spot on. That is the core message. Let's differentiate the good kind and the bad. Let's do everything in our power to prevent as many preventable failures as we can and celebrate and welcome the good kind.
0: And we're going to differentiate and get onto all of them, but I want to sort of dig into it a little bit, but also touch on as well the fact that you are so well known for your work on psychological safety. And that is a key thing to understand, to understand this book, isn't it?
1: It is. I mean, these are these are adjacent, highly overlapping topics. Psychological safety describes, in my view, the environment you need to fail well. And now we're going to dig into the substance of, of what you do and how you experiment and how you experiment safely and in a, in a learning oriented, joyful way.
0: Can you just quickly explain for context what psychological safety is, as well as then how to get it and how to mess it up?
1: Psychological safety is a state of low interpersonal threat. So that sounds a little academic and it is. But what that means is when you have a when you're in a psychologically safe environment, you believe not that it's easy, but that it is welcome and expected that you speak up directly with questions, concerns, ideas, you know, and yes, even failures. So it describes an environment where you believe you can take the interpersonal risks that are essentially necessary for learning and growth and innovation and all the rest.
0: Do you think since you did your groundbreaking work into psychological safety that
1: it has become more commonplace. I think we're heading in the right direction. I mean, I, I, I want to be clear that psychological safety is an aspirational state, right? We are We are hardwired and socialized to be quite interpersonally risk-averse. We really care what people think of us. So're we're, we're often, you know, consciously and not so consciously, hedging our bets, you know, uh, should I say that here? You know, what, will he think well of me or not well of me? So we we kind of do that kind of processing, that impression management all the time. And when that isn't a dominant attribute of the environment, that's more rare than not.
0: I think releasing the shackles of what you've just described in many areas, if not all areas, is is really important and is something I'm sure we can all reflect on in our own lives. Now, I just want to touch on the the tagline of your book. So why learning to fail can teach us to thrive? And you've got the t-shirt, haven't you, Amy? Because I love how you start the book. And really, your whole story started with you doing some research into medical failures, I think it was. And you had this hypothesis, you were pretty sure it was going to go one way. And I'll let you fill in the blanks. And then when you got the results back, your hypothesis was shot down in flames, which sent you into a bit of an emotional tailspin thinking, right, that's me done. But here we are X years later with you being named one of the greatest thinkers
1: out there, which just shows how wrong we can get it. Absolutely. And that that is really the core message to achieve things, you must be willing to fail. That doesn't make it fun. That doesn't make it any more comfortable along the way. You know, in, in that moment, I really did feel quite upset and, and even, you know, hopeless. Like I'm going to give up, drop out of graduate school because I was not just wrong. I was, you know, completely wrong, or at least it looked that way. So yes, it doesn't feel good, but it is necessary.
0: Can you just quickly summarize what, got you to that point into that emotional tailspin
1: so i was part of a team of you know expert medical researchers and who were studying medication errors and they invited me on the team because i had the ability as a phd student in organizational behavior to measure teamwork properties so i used a validated team survey to just see if we could find out how well these medical care teams were working together as teams and they, meanwhile, the, med- the experts, the medical experts were collecting data on errors over a six-month period. I got the survey data about the teams in, in month one. So then I had to wait patiently for those data. And my hypothesis, my simple hypothesis, was that better teams would have fewer errors, which makes good sense if you think about it. But then, unfortunately, when I got the data... There was, in fact, a statistically significant relationship between error rates and teamwork, but in the wrong direction. So I was just plain wrong. I was as wrong as you could be, apparently. And to make a long story short, what I ultimately realized was that the better teams weren't making more mistakes. They were more upfront about them. They were more willing to talk about them, to report them to the researchers that these were happening. And they deeply understood the need to talk about these things so that you could get constantly better and safer in taking care of patients. And so that was the sort of surprise finding, the small failure that led me to think about differences in interpersonal climate across teams, ultimately psychological safety. Wow. You mentioned that it wasn't
0: very comfortable, but can you recall what sort of thoughts were going through your head and perhaps some of the sensations in your body as well at that moment when it was like, "Uh
1: I mean, I think my, my first response was just disbelief. And of course I did, I, I just quickly looked at, okay, where did I make a mistake? And I sort of walked backwards through my data analysis to see if I just made a silly mistake and put the sign in backwards or something. And with, with that, Hard work. I found no. I hadn't. Unfortunately, I hadn't made a mistake, and so then I started, just to panic a little bit. Like I won't be able to publish. I won't be able to graduate. You know, I had a sinking feeling in my my stomach. I, I felt a little bit ashamed. I definitely felt afraid. I I recall feeling afraid to tell my advisor about these results, and I think we call this kind of thinking awfulizing. Right. You know, you've got this you've got this unexpected event and then it spirals out of control very quickly and and, and quite emotionally.
0: Yeah. awfulizing. I think it was Albert Ellis who called it that, wasn't it? And then there's catastrophizing is another way of, of putting it. Do you feel then in the intervening years that you've got much better at observing the emotional storm that inevitably arises and perhaps taking it with a pinch of salt?
1: Yes, and I think the primary difference is being able to shorten the time. It's. I have to admit, I still have those unhealthy, counterproductive responses, but I can climb back to self more quickly than I used to be able to. You
0: call them unhealthy, but I mean they're quite normal, though, aren't they? That's they are the thing. Normal. Because it's, it's, I think of them a bit like a car alarm—really annoying more often than not, useless, keeps us up at night, that kind of thing, but occasionally valuable, and you're not going to stop it. It's just this sort of hardware that's whirring in the background. But like you say, the key is to not get lost in it for too long.
1: I think that that's absolutely right. It's, it's unhealthy in the sense, not that it's not normal, it's unhealthy in the sense that it doesn't help you preserve your positive outlook and come with the best strategies to solve the problem. In the moment, it limits your ability to solve the problem that you just encountered.
0: So how do you then stop yourself being sucked into that emotional tailspin these days?
1: Well, I've learned to do what a, a, a mentor of mine advocated years ago, which is to stop, challenge, choose. And stop is really just that pause. Force yourself, take a breath, take a deep breath and pause and then notice the thoughts And then Mm. challenge the thoughts like, okay, I'm thinking just because this happened, I'm going to have to drop out of school and I'll never be employed again. Probably not accurate. Let's be a bit more, you know, rational about that reaction and say, no, you know, this is inconvenient. This is unexpected, but it's not catastrophic. So challenge the unhelpful thinking or what Maxie Maltzby, who I do talk about in the book, who was a student of Albert Ellis, calls irrational but utterly believable. Right? Sort of it's it's <laughs> irrational to think I'm gonna die because I had this yeah. bad result. But in fact there's a part of you that believes it in that moment. So you challenge it and you say no that's wrong. And then so stop, pause, challenge the unhealthy thinking and then choose a more productive path forward.
0: You used the word I think you used the word counterintuitive earlier in terms of your findings. And something I've noticed is yeah I'm very used to that kind of catastrophic thinking that can happen when you think oh my god i've made a mistake or i'm about to make a mistake and what i used to do was try and challenge it and go into let's say take a a negative thought and turn it into a positive thought but actually what i found was that used a lot of energy and didn't always work whereas actually what the word used there sort of noticing thoughts observing those and just just letting them almost pass by like clouds in the sky for me that's actually a more effective strategy and it's counterintuitive a bit like well so many things
1: That's true, because you're just asking yourself to be an observer of your own thinking. So it's that tiny bit of psychological distance that helps you think about it more coolly and and less emotionally.
0: Now, we're going to dig into the different types of of failure and everything like that. But I just want to talk a little bit about, about psychological safety, about creating an environment in which people can make intelligent failures, as you call them. And I was wondering, what role do you think? Because You spoke about how we are so preoccupied with how people see us. That could be our ego, our self-concept that we have and the concept that we want other people to have of us, let's say. What role do you think ego plays in psychological safety and allowing failures? Because I read somewhere, and it might have been in your book, I can't remember exactly, but that the higher up the pecking order you go, the less likely you are to accept responsibility for failures and look for someone to
1: blame. That's Sid Winkholstein's research. He's a professor at Dartmouth (laughs) and it's, um, and it's, and I do talk about it in the book very briefly because it is counterintuitive, right? You would think, well, you have more power, you have more success. You should be more level headed and more willing to take accountability. And of course we, we, most people know the phrase, the buck stops here. You are, if you're the boss, you are ultimately the one who is, in fact, responsible. Um, and yet what he found was, in, in, a, in a study of, of dozens and dozens of failures, that the higher, higher you go, the, more, the less likely you were to take accountability for your own role in the failure.
0: Why do you think that is? Do you think that's a personality
1: type or because you climb up? That's a good question. I, I bet it's a little bit of both so the personality type, you know, oftentimes the people who are getting ahead are doing a good job of presenting a kind of um, perfect image uh, to the world and that, that's leading them to get promoted. It's not necessarily you know, leading them to be good at leading, especially. But I think also it can feel like, and it's true that you're more visible, there's more at stake, so that if you are admitting fallibility or fault, the consequences will be will be greater. I mean, I think the stakes can feel high, which is the kind of compassionate uh, aspect of this. And
0: just in terms of then ego and self concept, because I was just having a bit of a think about this. And I was looking at the inequality gap, let's say between workers and CEOs, CEOs pay in the US increased 1460% since 1978, workers less than 20%. So, the gaps got huge to go back to that pharmaceutical company that you worked for, so they were all about collaboration, but the problem <laughs> was they had this they had this pecking order they had where everyone was ranked at the end of First the year, ranking, which completely scuppered the possibility of creating the environment that you encourage. so I wonder whether the fact that we've got this huge pay and if you're getting paid a hundred times more than someone else. Then you know it's hard not to believe I'm a hundred times more valuable. Therefore, how can I make a mistake?
1: Or even worse, it's uh, it's a hundred times more risky if I get found out. I mean, most people suffer at least to some degree from the imposter syndrome, and if you you know secretly believe, wow, they are paying me an awful lot, and I may not in fact be quite that good. How could I be a thousand times better than a middle manager or a you know, a frontline worker—that's just not true. So the feeling of risk at being found out is that much greater. So this is a yet yet another reason why these vast inequalities are problematic, right? because if it makes it actually makes it harder for those who lead to be good leaders because they're overpaid. That's a kind of interesting idea.
0: Yeah. So inequality, overpayment, and then also sort of putting people on the pedestals, which I think partly comes with that. So if I look at my own industry of broadcasting, they use the word talent a lot. It's a loaded word. And because the implication is that the people working around them aren't necessarily talented. And then you have people special. You know, groveling at their feet and, you know, fawning over their every need. And then it's hard to not necessarily take that on board and as you pointed out there's probably two sides to that there's probably a do i really deserve this and then the other part that goes well of course i do because everyone's saying i'm talent and special so i must be therefore i'm allowed to behave in this way so this kind of whole ego self-concept and mental hierarchies thing seems to be really getting in the way of of the work that you're extolling
1: that's right and and another way to say that is it's really getting in the way of learning it's very hard to learn if you already know. And the more people are telling you, oh, you are right and your ideas are so good, and the more you're doing all the talking and not enough listening. And, and the more you believe, yes, I'm, I must be pretty good because, look, every, everyone laughs at my jokes, you know, yeah. all the rest. Right? The more you are closing yourself down from learning. And, and, and learning is the thing that we all need to keep doing if we want to stay relevant and make contributions.
0: Here's a question then. How have you noticed people treat you differently as your status has risen as a thinker?
1: (laughs) You know, it's funny because my husband is um, the dean of the Harvard Medical School and has been for the last six years. And I have certainly noticed now how people treat him wildly differently than they used to when he was, you know, an ordinary top scientist. But I, I, I probably don't pay enough attention to that the same is true for me, and I should, I should pay more attention to it.
0: Do you think you've managed to retain the same level of humility that you had, let's say, when you were staring at those research results, thinking, (laughs) I'm finished, and I'm heading for
1: the streets? You know, I actually do think I have, and I don't want to say it's imposter syndrome, although there's always a little bit of that, but I do have this sense that around every corner that is going to be that sort of, you know, unexpected and, and deeply problematic catch that finds me out. Yeah. Retaining
0: that humility, however way you do it. Right. And as you said there, you know, whether it be a touch of imposter syndrome or whatever, which we all have. right. Again, I think that's just the default way our brains work. I remember yep. once doing a talk and saying, and someone talked about imposter syndrome and I said, everyone put your hand up if you've ever felt it. Everyone in the room. So
1: it's, Isn't that, that's it's, reassuring. It's, that is very
0: reassuring. It's very normal. It's the car alarm syndrome. In the book, you talk about Ray Dalio. And he went through a really significant humbling that served him very well. Could you just share that story briefly?
1: Yes, you know, that that may be my favorite story uh, in in the book, because it comes very close to being the good kind of failure, but it misses. And here's why. So in 1982, Ray Dalio already had had about seven years of, of success in financial sort of investment world was quite convinced that all of the pundits were wrong in predicting sort of economic growth. He was convinced because of a number of measures that he was paying close attention to that the economy was about to head into a tailspin. And so he literally bet everything he had and everything his company had on that bet, on that, on that prediction, and he was dead wrong. Right. The economy just began in in 82, one of the longest growth spurts in history. So he lost everything. Right. And, and uh, he had a, he had an MBA from Harvard, my my school, and um, he said he had to borrow money from his dad to pay his own rent. Right? So this was enormously humbling. And. You know, I talk in the book about intelligent failures, which are in new territory, certainly making an investment, a financial investment is always, by definition, new territory in pursuit of a goal, obviously economic return in this case, having done your homework. He had done a great deal of homework. And to be a smart failure, it needs to be as small as possible. It needs to be no. You don't invest more than you actually can afford to lose in an uncertain bet. And that's where he got it wrong. Right. He invested more than he technically could have afforded to lose. But what's great about the outcome is that it changed him because he had plenty of ego and most of it well earned. But he said that he he learned to shift from thinking, I know I'm right. Right. Others are wrong. I'm right. To thinking, I wonder why I'm right, which is a lovely Shift, right? It's a small shift from confidence and ego to at least, you know, confidence and curiosity. And that curiosity makes all the difference.
0: There's a lovely line where he says something, or it's something along these lines, which is, I want the right answer, and I don't care if the right answer comes from me. And that word me, that is the ego, the self concept that we need to rise above.
1: Because more more often than not, most we want to be right more than we want to really be right, I didn't yes. put that right, but you know we, we we want it to be about us more than sort of getting the actual goal that we're trying to get.
0: It reminds me of uh, another phrase which is we want to be right rather than happy, which often arises in relationships, for example,
1: exactly, I'm sure. and makes us deeply unhappy. And we've come to relationships and all sorts
0: of stuff. Right, let's define then your, your three types of, of failure. So we've got intelligent failure, we've got mm-hmm. basic failure, and we've got complex failure. We want to embrace the first and avoid the latter. So I want to come to intelligent fa- failure last because I want to start okay. with basic, if that's all right. I mean, sure. it is basic after all. And yeah. I thought a good way to illustrate it is by talking about your sailing injury. Sorry Uh-oh. to bring it up, but it's, yeah. a, it's a cracker, uh, no yes. pun intended. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, if 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 um, if our listeners, if any of them are sailors, they'll understand this better than others. But I'll, um, several years ago, I I made the I don't know maybe not mistake, but I signed up for an alumni regatta um, in the Charles River near near Harvard, and this is this is a regatta that takes place in what what are called high performance sailboats. They move very fast. They're very uh, sort of skittish, and if if the wind is high, they can be. In fact, you know quite fast and quite potentially dangerous. Um, The one thing that is really dangerous as a sailor is heading straight downwind because the sail and the boom are out as far as they can go. And the smallest shift in the wind could quickly send that boom flying to the other side. And, you know, it'll... Be more likely than not to intersect with your head on its on its way. If you're sailing upwind, you know, and a big wind shift comes, the worst that can happen is you you capsize and you're in the water. But if you're sailing downwind, I mean, you could literally get get killed by this. Mm, mm. And so, any experienced sailor knows that you pay very close attention. You are vigilant when you are downwind. It's complete focus and i was dead downwind in the charles river where wind shifts happen all the time chatting with my crew as if you know we're just having lunch at a picnic table and suddenly i mean even fa- you know faster than you can possibly imagine that boom came flying over and in a second i found myself in the charles uh, river having been hit on the head overboard he quickly turned the boat around to come get me i climbed in and saw the blood coming out of my head everywhere. So it was a basic failure. I made a, a, I made a, a single mistake of of not paying attention when sailing downwind, cardinal error, and I paid for it um, with nine stitches in the right side of my, my head here.
0: And as well, you, you talk in the book about being in hospital and thinking, <laughs> having that emotional tailspin again, but Same. then managing, managing to catch yourself in it. But can you just then describe what is a basic failure and how does that qualify as one?
1: Sure. A basic failure has a single cause, human error. There is knowledge, you know, the, there is existing knowledge about how to get the result you want, whether that's a, a, a safe sale or a chocolate chip cookies, right? The, 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 result, the, the knowledge exists and for whatever reason, you make a mistake and you get a failure instead of a success so it's it's technically and readily preventable
0: and so in that case your basic mistake was was chatting and not paying attention Simple as that it wasn't right as simple as
1: that it's there's one time i mean there's one time in particular on a sailboat where you are required to pay very close attention and that's heading dead downwind
0: basic failures can obviously happen all the time you say to er is human but obviously you also talk and i think this is this really had an impact on me is is considering the context because obviously as you said there whilst you were knocked into the river and you had stitches so it was pretty serious but it could have been really serious Could have been much worse and so i thought about another example that people can relate to and that would be for example texting while driving yes because perfect. that's such a basic mistake i've done it and i'm sure so many people can relate to it yet Because of the context, you're in what is essentially a lethal weapon.
1: It could result in death. And so that's how serious a basic mistake can get. It's a mistake to text and drive. And fortunately, I guess, most of the time it doesn't result in a basic failure. The loss of life or or, you know, major damage to your car because of, you know, something that happens as a result of that mistake. So that's part of the challenge is, you know, we, we make mistakes all the time and that's okay. And not all of them, thankfully, result in actual failures. But we need to be aware of the context that we're in. And if you're in a context where there are high stakes, particularly related to human safety, you have an obligation to yourself and to others to try to be as, as mistake-free as you can. Right? Don't don't make a an avoidable mistake like texting and driving. So
0: for example, for example you might be having a chat with your spouse, she's telling you something important, and then you could be texting, right? Now, that's still a basic mistake. And yes. it still could go right. punished. But at right. the same time, the context is is that much lower than than driving a car. So understanding that, I think, is so valuable. And just having those little reminders in place. So how then would you suggest avoiding basic mistakes?
1: The main way to avoid basic failures is to use the knowledge that you have. If you're, if you're trying to accomplish something, you know, baking a cake, uh, getting to your appointment on time, use the knowledge you have about how to do that and use it mindfully and, and carefully, thoughtfully. Similarly, have fun experimenting when the stakes are low. We don't have to be vigilant and careful all the time, but we do have to be vigilant and careful when, when the stakes are high.
0: Moving on then to complex failures, which again is fascinating. So I would sum it up as, as many little things, the perfect storm, and you tell that compelling story of that poor captain destroyed Mm. by loads of things going wrong and and all the fingers pointing at him. So just again, briefly, if you could just sort of share that story and the lessons from it.
1: Yeah. So that was in 1972, one of the worst environmental disasters in history. And the the ship was called Torrey Canyon. The captain was um, named Rugiati, And I count in my telling of the story, seven small factors any one of which on its own would not have led to this massive oil spill off the Isle of Scilly, but the way they came together, indeed, the perfect storm, the many little things that all add up led to this catastrophic failure. And indeed he was blamed. So he was, um, he had not had quite enough sleep uh, the night before the copy of the channel pilot, the the guidebook um, was missing for some reason. There was a small, you know, just annoying little glitch in the, in, in the steering. A lobster boat appeared on the horizon at just the wrong time. And, you know, a couple of other like little things, again, any one of them easy enough to compensate and overcome. But the fact of all seven of them happening at once led to this collision and massive, massive oil spill. The captain was blamed. The after action review, if you will, decided that he alone was completely at fault. And from my analysis of the story, I would say he was, um, in a sense, the victim of this perfect storm, far more than fully responsible. In fact, he seemed to have been a very good, experienced captain who had a big heart. And we've all had those days, right, where a bunch Mm. of things just happen to come together in just the wrong way and and lead us somewhere we didn't want to be. What role
0: then can psychological safety and having a culture of psychological safety play in stopping complex failures from happening they're still going to happen occasionally but from stopping them happening and how do you get that to work
1: it is an extremely important question because in in my analysis psychological safety is probably the most important factor in preventing complex failures most of the massive complex failures i have studied that range from you know nasa shuttle disasters to um, you know much smaller sort of business kinds of failures could easily have been prevented had someone in the chain of events felt able to speak up in a timely way about a concern that they had. And the concerns are never like, oh, I'm 100% sure this is going to result in a disaster, but they're, huh, I see it differently. I I wonder if I'm alone. Had they spoken up, there could have been a better conversation, which more often than not could have prevented the complex failure.
0: That obviously applies to organisations, but I want to just bring it into the domain of families and relationships, if I may, because I thought divorce could be a complex failure, right? Yes. Because I thought, you know, it's often... It's, it's not um, one thing. It's not that one no. text when she, she's telling you something or he's telling you something important, but it's a lot of little things. And you two speak about the importance of of speaking up, not sweeping yeah. things under the rug and everything like that. And I know in, in my own relationship, obviously you have the honeymoon stage and then you, all your issues start coming out, don't they? And that's a choice point. Right. Right? Do I skirt around yeah, them and and, and and let the tension build or do you deal with them head on at the time, which is uncomfortable, right. but gets easier over time. So I just wondered if you could talk to that a little bit
1: you know I think that's a absolutely right diagnosis I think most divorces are complex failures it isn't one thing it's right it's the it's the many little things that finally just come to a head and someone or both parties declare they just don't want to be they don't want to be part of this relationship anymore and so often I think that's tragic it's wasteful it's something that didn't have to happen these two people felt very deeply they wanted to spend the rest of their lives together. They went through all of that. And then this this failure, it's not always tragic, right? Sometimes no. this is probably a good idea. These two people shouldn't be together, but I think often it is wasteful.
0: Hope you're enjoying this episode. I'm just going to quickly jump in to ask if you've ever questioned why the pursuit of success, whether a trophy, a job, a promotion, a bigger house, whatever it may be, never quite provides the lasting satisfaction and fulfillment that we expect. I think everyone can relate to this to a degree. And it's definitely a phenomenon that's come up time and time again on this podcast over the last five years. But another thing I've discovered is that some of the things we seek, like approval, fame in some cases, and definitely status, are Actually, getting in the way of what we all really desire, which is to feel fulfilled and content internally. And I want to show using examples from Johnny Wilkinson to Caitlyn Jenner that the evangelical pursuit of success can often be empty. But I've also learned that what we really want is actually so close that it's all too easy to overlook. And I sincerely believe this recognition can change your life and provide that lasting sense of inner peace. I share what I've learned in my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. It's published by Bloomsbury. It's available for pre-order now. It'll be on general release in January and I will link to it all in the show You talk about the importance of vulnerability and, for example, tough conversations, and I'm reminded of a couple I knew who were having a few difficulties, and I remember him, him saying that to me, and I said, oh, would you consider getting a bit of help? Because they were having difficulty communicating, and he said, oh, no, we're adults. We should be able to communicate <laughs> properly as adults. And the analogy no, I always give no. is he would happily go and pay some money for help with his golf swing, but when it comes to something important. So that kind of vulnerability and accepting, okay, we're human, we have weaknesses, we have strength, but also really embracing those difficult conversations. That's the only way to grow.
1: That's right. And it it's so hard for us to be vulnerable with each other. Again, we have that instinct to want to look good and to think that if I'm honest and straightforward about my fears, my weaknesses, my concerns, that you won't like me. You'll actually like me more. Right? Yes. The, the more honest I am, the more we realize how much we have in common and and we we fail to see that vulnerability is actually a strength and I do believe the Latin root includes strength right it's if you're strong enough to be vulnerable then you're strong, not weak.
0: I thought that was such a, a lovely thing you pointed out that you know our propensity to want to paint this perfect exterior, want to be perceived in a certain way, you know, I'm great, I'm a success, I'm this, I'm that. And yet the irony is that we don't like that in other people. We like people right. who are flawed and human and everything right. like that. So understanding this
1: mismatch is really crucial in every area of life. As soon as you shift from sort of an acquaintance, someone you meet and like and enjoy to a friend, is the moment where you've shared some kind of fear or weakness or you know story from your past that just shows you in a negative light. And then suddenly now we're friends. Now we're not just acquaintances.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Vulnerability is key. Right. So let's move then on to intelligent failures. So these are the ones
1: we want to make. An intelligent failure is one that happens in new territory. We lack existing knowledge about how to get the result you are trying to achieve. It is in pursuit of a goal. And it is driven by a hypothesis, or at least reason to believe this might work. And it's as small as possible, where Ray Dalio missed that part. Right? So it's, it's, um, it's essentially an experiment that failed, or an experiment that did not get the result that you had hoped for. Now that could be a blind date. That could be a clinical trial.
0: OK. And you talk about little things like doing your homework, keeping it small. So can you just outline a couple of the other key sure. things to bear in mind? Yes.
1: So the the part about having a good reason to believe it could work is found in doing your homework, having taken the time or or just the trouble to think about what do we know? Why might this work? If you're a scientist, that means you've read the academic literature related to the topic you're trying to pursue if you are making a new friend, you, you, you find out what you can about that person um, so that you don't make sort of stupid mistakes that you could have avoided. So you've done your homework.
0: You've done your homework. And speaking of homework, you gave a quite incredible story. I, I imagine you know which one I'm going to go for here. The woman in your book who I think she went on, she went on a blind date. And yes, so yeah, she
1: went on a dating app.
0: She went on a dating app, met some guy who gives fellas a bad name because he absolutely wolfed down the menu ordered loads of bottles of wine and then slinked off leaving her to pay now that's the sort of thing that could put a lot of people off dating but it didn't do that to her she took <laughs> the information so can you just talk a little bit to this because I thought this was, it was yeah. really interesting
1: it's a great story her name is Amy Webb uh, and she is a data scientist so she's a little bit of a geek um, which is a good thing in in, in my book so she took that failure to heart and said, no, I'm not going to just give up. I'm going to use it to figure out everything I can about how these algorithms work. And how how can I increase the chances that I meet someone who is, in fact, a great guy, the the kind of person that I would want to spend the rest of my life with? So um, she experimented with the app to see what kinds of people they would send to different she made sort of these um, yeah. fake profiles uh, it's worth you know emphasizing no nobody was hurt in this in this process to kind to kind of see to try to reverse engineer the way you would find someone who was you know thoughtful and kind and adventurous and and, and basically a good guy and and she pulled it off
0: <laughs> it really did work that's going to some incredible lengths I'm not sure most of us would be able to do that
1: well, most of us wouldn't be, but she was a data scientist, right? So, and, and most of us have analogous opportunities in our life, you know, where we get something wrong and we can either just give up and I'm not going to pursue that goal anymore, or we can use what we have to understand it better and experiment and try new things until we make progress in the direction we're trying to go.
0: Something that comes to mind is that I often get young people get in touch asking for advice let's say how to get into broadcasting or whatever it may be and i always say look your 20s is a time of kind of experimentation it's almost like a free decade i don't know how necessarily true that is but that's my view you speak about your son don't you he was selling solar panels door to door and you were a bit worried about him and the rejection that he might suffer but it was really good it reminded me my first job out of university or one of my first jobs at university, I was a chugger, slang for a charity mugger. Very unfair. But I was one of those people on the street trying oh. to get people to sign up for charities. And I'll tell you what, it was brutal. Some days was really good, but other days you want the ground to swallow you up. But I always say, whenever I see one of these people who are raising money for charities, I always say, look, this was the best job I ever did because it really taught, it toughened me up. It made you realize rejection might sting in the moment, but actually <laughs> it's fine. And so now when I do broadcasting, for example, at Wimbledon, and they say, who wants to go and run around with the microphone in the crowd? Someone's like, oh, God, no, that's the last. I'll do that all day long because it really doesn't matter. So first of all, props to your son and about the 20s. What do you
1: think? I think the 20s are the time for iteration, for massive learning. One of the mistakes I see a lot of young people make is that they'll pick, you know, job A over job B because it pays a tiny bit more, where job B would have been a steeper learning curve. Mm -hmm. It's like always choose learning in your 20s. Choose the opportunities that will give you the most stretches, probably the most failures, so that you can sort of just really strengthen your knowledge and also your failure muscles,
0: yeah, I went traveling for a while. And when I came back, I felt this real rush. I need to get a job, get the money coming in or else I end up on the street or whatever it may be, that emotional tailspin. Be awfulizing. It happened to be quite a fun job. And I did that for a few years, but I always had this sort of nagging sense in the back of my mind. That I often say my ladder was not up against the right wall. And it wasn't until I was, let's say, 26 that oh. I thought, oh my God, what am I doing? You know, I've trained in broadcasting and really dropped right to the bottom of that ladder to get back into broadcasting, took a huge pay cut. But I had this internal joy, and that was my sign yes. that I would was doing the right thing. And so how then would you suggest to people to to not fall for that trap that I did and that so many people do that it's like, uh oh, gotta play it safe here, as opposed to making these intelligent failures.
1: I love the phrase, my ladder didn't feel that my ladder was up the right against the right wall. I mean, that's just that's so evocative. And I I had the same exact experience, really, where I was, actually, it wasn't until I was 30 that I went, I applied for and went to this PhD program. And so really, when I realized that the wall I was supposed to be up against was academic, that I, I really love ideas. I love writing and teaching and explaining. So it's like, well, that. wait a minute. And I had not set myself, ultimately I had set myself up for that because I'd done all these different interesting things. But I think the, the, the advice is keep the reflection going. Maybe keep a journal, but just keep paying attention to yourself. What gives you joy? What feels hard, but then satisfying when you make progress in it? And just notice yourself, notice what you care about, Notice what you believe matters in the world, because if you are doing something that contributes to that, you'll be energized by it. You'll be motivated by it.
0: Absolutely. And actually, I don't regret doing that that first no. job at all, because it gave me the comparison to realize that actually, no, that's not what I want to do. And so when I found something, it was such a stark comparison in terms of the enjoyment that I was getting from the experience, whereas some people who actually went straight into broadcasting didn't have that comparison and so became a bit more downbeat about it earlier so it's funny how things work out isn't it the question
1: is are you working to prove yourself you know people think i'm supposed to be in banking or i'm supposed to make a lot of money or are you working to express yourself
0: and oh yes and contribute right oh i love that express yourself i think that's that's fantastic
1: and everything i did in my 20s ultimately was absolutely critical to allowing me to become a successful academic i couldn't Mm. if i had gone to graduate school at age 22 it's just no way. I I didn't have the instincts, the intuitions, the sort of um, the things in the world that puzzled me that I then had to go and try to explain.
0: Okay. So we want to do intelligent failures in terms of, you know, this willingness to, to try things, whether it be in dating or in work or whatever it may be, as long as the stakes aren't too high and really embrace that is, is a way to get ahead. So that's really something you're you're really trying to, uh, the message you're trying to get across. And the Daniel Pinker research was really interesting about this, really backed this up. So can you just talk to this a little bit?
1: Yes, I love that work that he did. And he asked thousands of people about their regrets, which seems like a very depressing topic, but it isn't because it shows you what you care about, what you value. But the biggest regrets were essentially uniformly the things that people had not done that were stretch goals, you know, the the girl I didn't ask out in high school because I thought she was out of my league, the job I didn't go for, the race I didn't try to run. I mean, all of, all of the things that I thought about, but I was too risk averse to to go for them and I didn't. And so regret is a, it's kind of tragic in a way because you can't do anything about it. It, it refers to the past. All of us can use that knowledge about what people regret later in life to remind ourselves to go for it, to pursue the stretch goals, to do the hard things. And it's okay if you come up short.
0: Yeah. So he basically said people don't regret the things they do, but they do regret the things they didn't try to do essentially. And Yes, it it comes back again, doesn't it? To ego getting in the way, not falling for that emotional panic that comes with the ego of, oh my God, no, this won't work because I'm not good enough. Imposter syndrome, whatever it may be, which are all all sort of in there. Being able to do that thing that you said right at the start about stand back, observe, and act in spite of that. Just because you have all this stuff going on doesn't mean you don't have to do it. You can still be ambitious and tr- make intelligent failures with all this stuff, emotional storm going on on the inside. It's fine. It's just a car alarm, right? It's
1: we can make a distinction between the ego self, that sort of polished exterior that I want the world to see, and the true self. You know, which is which is vulnerable, which is um, fallible, and. Ultimately, we err in thinking we'll be better off if everybody sort of sees that polished exterior versus we feel we are better off, in fact, when we make genuine connections, human yes. connections with other people as fallible human beings.
0: Just quickly as well, you talk about systems deciding how to make an intelligent failure. So the here and now, and I often talk about the importance of staying in the here and now, but actually the here and now versus yeah, elsewhere and later. Yeah, yeah.
1: But think it through, right? We, emotionally we want to be here, we want to be present, we want to be in the here and now because that's all we have. And we are prone to temporal discounting, the psychologists call it, which is that sort of that that tendency to minimize some consequence in the future of something I do now. For example, just taking care of patients, I'm thinking in this moment, if I question the doctor's order, he's going to yell at me. That's temporal discounting because the much more important question is if I don't question the doctor's order, that patient may be harmed later. The system thinking is fundamentally making the shift from me and now to us and later and just yeah. being able to take that into account so that I am a little more thoughtful about some of the decisions I make.
0: And you've come up with a brilliant two question shortlist so that you can ask yourself yourself. In the moment. So could you just talk about this? Because I thought this was was great. It's only two questions long as well. So nice and easy to remember. So
1: two questions, one, who and what else might be affected by this decision? And what consequences might happen later as a result of this decision? Very simple.
0: Very simple, but very, very powerful. So could you think of a situation where those questions could be quickly applied? For example, even the texting while driving,
1: Right. I mean, I think that's a very good one, right? Because so, first of all, you have to have that pause, enough of a pause to realize that you're about to make a decision. You know, oftentimes we're doing that texting without even thinking about it, just almost automatic behavior. So pause to say, okay, all right, if I, you know, if I text right now, I get that thing off my head that I needed to do. But if I text right now, that might in fact lead to a car crash I use the example in the book of of my eighth grade son asking to join the travel league for his baseball team, which was sort of an additional set of baseball games and practices in addition to the other one he was already a part of. And of course, the easy answer is yes. You know, he wants to. He's got a big smile on his face. He's earnest. And just I'm not saying it's the wrong answer but it really does have major implications for the rest of the family, for the calendar, for the homework. And it's okay to make that decision to do all of those extra practices, but make it thoughtfully or else realize, no, that co- the cost is too high.
0: And an important thing to say is embracing failure, embracing intelligent failure does not mean
1: embracing mediocrity, does it? No, no not <laughs> even close. Right? In fact, I would argue that the people who have more intelligent failures than... The rest of us are higher achievers. You know, every Nobel Prize winner, every elite athlete has embraced the intelligent failures along the way to their extraordinary successes. They just know they appreciate the fact that if you're not willing to get it wrong in pursuit of something challenging. You might as well get out of the game.
0: Now, I thought this was fantastic. I've really noticed a lot of people at the moment, like pivoting in careers. Perhaps I think COVID had this impact. People sort of reassessing and thinking, actually, do I want to be doing this for the rest of my life? Do I want to do something that gives me that internal joy? And so the way to do that is to just go and right. start making intelligent failures.
1: Yeah, reach out, you know, to network with people who are doing things you might like to do. Be prepared for, as my son was in his selling of solar panels, be prepared for rejection. You will have rejections, and that's okay. They are stepping stones on the path to that new
0: discovery or that new opportunity. And the way to deal with rejections is to not be too preoccupied with keeping up appearances, as you say, not have our psychological shell cracked. If we can let go of that, that equips us better to do exactly what you're encouraging.
1: Can we make a conscious choice to learn? If we choose learning, we choose learning and growth over, you know, proving and looking good can be hard and uncomfortable in the short term. But ultimately, that's where I think real joy and happiness and, and achievement come from.
0: So just finally, if you had to do like a one line, what do you want people to take from this and perhaps your psychological safety work as well? What would it be?
1: It would be that. All failure is not alike there are indeed some that we must welcome into our lives to get uh, where we really want to, to be and we can do this by ourselves and with others you know psychological safety describes the sort of the, the, the environment we need to learn joyfully with other people to be ourselves and to keep stretching and learning uh, as we go
0: Amy I just want to say Thank you so much for writing this. I really enjoyed it. It Gave me lots of really good ideas. And also thanks for talking to me for the last hour. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you so very much. Thank
0: you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder to check out my YouTube channel. The link is in the bio along with the link to my debut book, which is out on January the 18th and is currently available for pre-order. To find out more as well, head to simonmundy.com.